they're sitting in their comfortable, safe, you know, living room watching watching TV, you know, they're not that comfortable and safe because if they go outside, maybe to the house next door, you know, there's something in the basement, or maybe their kid's elementary school teacher, you know, has conjured something in her house with a Ouija board when she was just playing around one night. You know, all stuff happens right next door to, to people all the time and they don't know it. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Hope you all dug the Lost Cast series finale last week, especially folks who had not checked out our sister program Stay tuned to be away later on this summer for the spinoff of the Lost Cast, tentatively called the Popcast so far, which will feature Jeremy Vaney and I discussing pop culture and only pop culture throughout the summer on a limited 13-episode run. I got a couple of in-house notes I need to take care of before we get into this week's program. First of all, I know a lot of folks have been waiting for the announcement about the BOA PO box. I'm happy to report that we have a P.O. box for BOA for all those folks who want to make donations but do not trust the internet, don't want to put out their information online, you can send us your donations via snail mail now. I'll have all the information on that for you at the end of the program, so stick around for that if you are interested in making a snail mail donation. Secondly, it's been a long time coming, but we are very, very close to finally launching BOA 2.0 as the official homepage for BOA. Hopefully, by the time you're listening to this, if not by Tuesday afternoon or so, we will have BOA 2.0 up and running as the main page for Banal of America. And we are definitely interested in your feedback, what you like, what you don't like, how is the load time for this new graphic intensive version of BOA. We want to hear all your thoughts on BOA 2.0, so definitely send them our way once the new version of Banal of America is up and running. Now that we've taken care of that business, let's roll on into this week's edition of BOA Audio. Our guest is journalist and paranormal investigator Jason Offit. He was on last week for the Lost Cast, appeared numerous times on the Lost Cast, and was featured here on BOA Audio for the baseball special as well as in Season 4 for an in-depth discussion on Shadow People. But this time around, he's here to talk about his new book, What Lurks Beyond, The Paranormal in Your Backyard, which profiles an amazing array of esoteric events and tales that can be found within a 100-mile radius of his home in Missouri. Much like many of the guests who make multiple appearances here on the program, this definitely turns into more of a conversation, more of a jam session than an interview as we discuss a number of the stories featured in What Lurks Beyond, as well as a whole bunch of little side roads and side tangents related to the genres that are covered in the book. Allow me to give you a brief 
perusal of the topics we're going to be looking at here this week on the program. We're going to hear about haunted locations such as college campuses and a place called the Axe Murder House in Iowa. We're going to talk about Madman Markham and his alleged time machine. We're going to really delve into the black-eyed kids phenomenon. This is a terrifying area of esoterica that I had not even really been aware of until I read the book and was completely stunned by. We'll look at the ghost hunting fad from a number of different angles. We'll touch on Ouija boards. We'll hear the story of a psychic dog. We'll get an update from Jason on his paranormal journalism course, which he taught last fall at Northwest Missouri State University. And we'll get an update on his research into shadow people. That's sort of an overview of all the different areas we're going to be discussing. But of course, there's just tons of main streets and back roads, which will be examined here in this conversation with Jason Offit. As I have been saying for a while, it is the perfect episode for summertime camping trips, since Jason is going to share some really terrifying tales that are tailor-made for listening around the campfire. And it's great to have him back here on BOA Audio for a pure paranormal conversation. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Jason Offit, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Jason Offit is a writer and college journalism instructor. At various times in his career, he's also been a newspaper editor, general assignment reporter, photographer, newspaper consultant, bartender, farmhand, and the mayor of a small Midwestern town. His books include Haunted Missouri, A Ghostly Guide to the Show Me State's Most Spirited Spots, Darkness Walks, a book which chronicles a number of shadow people sightings and the shadow people phenomenon, and his latest book, What Lurks Beyond the Paranormal in Your Backyard. He lives with his wife and children in Maryville, Missouri. Jason's website is www.from-the-shadows.blogspot.com. Don't forget the hyphens in there, my friends. From-the-shadows.blogspot.com. Or just go to BOA and click the linkage provided on Jason's name. I got to put over Jason here for the website from the shadows.blogspot.com. It is an outstanding piece of work, constantly updated with chilling tales, which he collects from his readers, discussing a whole range of various paranormal phenomena, but almost all of them are really, truly frightening stories from people who've had mind blowing encounters with the unknown. You definitely want to make from the shadows a daily destination if you're a fan of paranormal tales. With all that said, let's get down to business, my friends, and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on May 26, 2010. Jason Offit, talking about his new book, What Lurks Beyond, The Paranormal in Your Backyard, on BOA Audio, Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. We've got a really cool guest here for the program. I'm sure you are familiar with him. He's been on the program before. He was on for a full-length conversation last year to talk about his book on shadow people titled Darkness Walks. That's from Anomalous Books. And he recently put out a new book titled What Lurks Beyond the Paranormal in Your Backyard. And full disclosure, I wrote the blurb on the back of the book, but that's not why we're having him on the show. I wrote the blurb because we're friends and... We're having him on the show because the book is really awesome, and it's the perfect book, I think, for this time of year because everyone is going places 
right now. You know, you're going out with your family to Lake Winnipesaukee or, you know, you got to go to grandma's for the weekend because it's the summertime and, and the kids are home and stuff. This is the book for you because it's 32 stories ranging from just a whole host of different paranormal phenomena found within a 100-mile radius of our guest's home. And I, I shouldn't have teased the guest name for so long, but it's Jason Offit, longtime friend of the program. He's been on the Lost Cast. He's been on the Baseball Special. And as I said, he's been on BOA Audio proper back in Season 4. And it's great to have him back here for a full-length paranormal discussion here for Season 5. Jason, welcome back to the show. Tim, it is great to be on the show. Thank you for having me back. And I do want to comment, Lake Winnipesaukee, what a great name. In the Midwest, we have lake names like Smithville Lake, County Lake. <laughs> nothing nothing quite that, not, nothing that rolls off the tongue quite like Winnipesaukee. Yeah, I always think of what about Bob when I, when I hear Lake Winnipesaukee. I think that's where they headed up to in that movie. But like I said, perfect for... I would say it's a great beach book, but it, you, you want to read it around the campfire almost, which is kind of what we're hoping to go for here on, on this interview, you know? So bring the MP3 with you and turn it on if you're sitting around the campfire because you're going to hear some spooky stories. And uh, you can tell that you're a journalist because each story is like this really cool self-contained little tale. And uh, as I said, ranges from ghosts, shadow people, possessions, near-death experience, UFOs, black-eyed kids. I mean, the whole the gamut of paranormal stuff so outstanding job well thank thank you very much tim and, and the yeah campfire stories absolutely i think um having it just within 100 miles radius of my house does does a couple of things one one of the goals that i wanted was to show everybody that that uh, you know the paranormal is literally right outside right outside your back door and 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 some people within that 100 mile radius uh have read the book already and talked to me they're like crap man I know that person. <laughs> I've been to that guy's house before, and this shit happened. <laughs> yeah, it's just amazing how much stuff and how varied this stuff is. I mean, we hear about this whole concept of window zones, but this book actually makes you kind of take a whole second look at the idea in the sense that maybe, you know, maybe, sure, there may be some, like, uh, like a small pocket that has everything, but really when you when you take into account the book here, What Lurks Beyond, the paranormal really is everywhere. Right. It's it's not just yeah. It's not the Bigfoot's not just in the Pacific Northwest and and uh, and you know, UFO crashes aren't just in uh, you know Roswell, New Mexico. There, <laughs> stuff happens all over the place. There's a UFO crash and government retrieval uh, in Missouri that uh, predates Roswell by six years, and a lot of people don't know about it. And I I didn't include it in the book because it was outside the, the hundred mile radius. But yeah, this stuff happens all over the place. Now, how did you even come up with this idea? Because it's a pretty creative concept that I never even would have, you know, I'm not that creative, I guess. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't have considered that, but I love it. I mean, I wish, I, I hope other people sort of take this and run with it and do their own, you know, 100 miles in Florida or something. Which is one of the things that I, I suggest, at least to the readers of the book, that, hey, go, go find the stuff yourself. Go, go looking. The, the, how I came up with the idea really had a couple of different reasons. One was... Um, I started noticing because uh, I, I write uh, I write a you know as you know a, a blog a paranormal blog and I, I have had people from the area tell me stories I'm like damn man that's, that's a lot of interesting stuff that's happening right here and so I started digging and and found so many paranormal things that have happened so close to home I thought man this is great this is going to show people 
that you know where they're sitting in their comfortable, safe, you know, living room watching watching TV. You know, they're not that comfortable and safe because if they go outside, maybe to the house next door, you know, there's something in the basement. Or maybe their kid's elementary school teacher, you know, has conjured something in her house with a Ouija board when she was just playing around one night. You know, all stuff happens right next door to, to people all the time and they don't know it. That's that's one of the reasons I did the book. Uh, the other reason that I pick a, picked 100 miles is when I came up with the concept for the book, I was debating on how many miles away from my house it should be. Yeah. And gas was like four bucks a gallon. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to have to drive that far. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense because, like you point out in the book too, like if you're going to some place that's 100 miles away, that means you really have to drive 200 miles because you got to go there and get back. So it's like, I mean, kudos to you, dude. I don't know if I'd have the patience to to drive 200 miles. Now, did you go to all these places and like talk to all these people, or was it sort of like some of them? The stories were so well known, you know, you could just talk to them on the phone, or or you know, how did how did you know you sort of put it all together? I guess is the question. Well, after I found out the the idea or the the what, what's going on, I did make phone calls. I did some phone call interviews, but uh, as you mentioned, as you pointed out when you were you know in your intro, uh, I'm a journalist. I have been for a long time. So, in order for me, I, I feel in order for me to correctly put the reader in the spot they need to be to to show them things. I need to go see it myself. Yeah. So I went to all of these spots and, wow. and interviewed people on, you know, interviewed people there and, and took pictures of the place because, yeah, again, I just wanted to be as fair with the reader as I possibly could. Now, that raises an interesting question here because there's a lot of stories in here that are very freaky and scary. And as I said, I remember interviewing you uh, last year for Darkness Walks and recounting just how the book had me looking over my shoulder as I was reading it. This book did the same thing. You do a really great job of sort of capturing the tangible terror that's in the air in some of these stories. So when you went to the various locations, was there one in particular that stood out to you that was like, this is freaky or sort of like, you know, spooked you more than more than any other? Uh, personally spooked me, no, not really, because I don't get spooked. Anymore, I mean, I'll, I'll go hang out at, at cemeteries at two o'clock in the morning, and listen listen to the coyotes, <laughs> uh, you know, or, or stand on a spot where a woman committed suicide, you know, a hundred years before, yeah, and where a ghost is supposed to to appear. You know, I'll, I'll go hang out in places like that, but nothing ever happens to me. I imagine when it does happen to me, <laughs> then I'll be nervous going out places. But the last spooky thing I ever ever had happen is I was I was a kid, so. Uh, no, not not really. I, there are a couple of places that I, I felt uncomfortable, uh, and generally, when I, I suggest to people if they go to some place that's supposed to be haunted, and you feel uncomfortable, you should probably leave. <laughs> yeah. You know, it might be your imagination, or it might be something uh, you know that doesn't want you to be there. Yeah, in a lot of these places, be they you know museums or historical locations, you often get the best stories from the people that work there because they're there every day and they almost uh well they have to at some point become sort of not necessarily jaded to the whole thing but it becomes commonplace to them strange sort of things that might happen you know what i mean oh right yeah absolutely i mean the, the first time people get kind of shocked at something but if they've worked there for a while and this same apparition keeps showing up they'll be like oh it's just henry again and laugh at the people who are scared <laughs> Exactly, yeah. 
as I noted to you before uh, we did the interview, I cherry-picked some stories here from the book. Uh, as we said, there's 32 stories in there, plus your tips on ghost hunting and some fun uh, recollections there at the end. So I picked about five stories out, and obviously then that leaves about 27 or so for people to, to read in the book. So we don't want to give the whole thing away. We want to share some of the great stories in the book, because, you know, otherwise I'm going to get a thousand emails from people. But it's all about stories, and there weren't any stories in it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we'll start out sort of at the beginning here with the haunted campus. Now, is this the school that you teach at? Yes. Okay. So you, are you like the paranormal dude of of the university where, like, if anything happens, people are like, go down to Mr. Offit's office and tell him right away what happened to you sort of thing? Uh, yeah, well, I am for the for the, for the whole town. I've had oh boy! People, yeah, I'm, I'm the ghost guy. So uh, when something weird happens to people, they uh, they come and talk to me. Oh man, maybe you can speak to this. Doesn't it seem like every college has its weird ghost stories, or is it just like me? Because even when I went to school, there was a few ghost stories up in Syracuse and stuff. Right. No. I, in, in matter of fact, I've thought about this for an idea for a book, uh, haunted campuses, because there seems to be on every uh, every college campus there seems to be at least one ghost story. Mm. Something, you know, some some uh, you know, freshman who couldn't stand the pressure hangs himself on you know the fifth yeah. floor of the dormitory, stuff like that. Somebody dies in a car wreck, and then they start seeing them in in their old dorm room or start smelling their cologne in their. Um, you know, at the student newspaper where they used to work, you know, st stuff like that is all over the place. I don't have time right now to work on that book, so if a listener wants to steal it, go ahead. <laughs> but, yeah, campuses are, are um, they're open to that for, for a number of reasons. One is the, is the students, age of the students. They, they love talking about stuff like that. When I went to school, there was uh, a dorm right next door to my dorm that there were rumors of it being haunted. Don't look up in the third floor. Uh, window when you walk by because you'll see an old lady staring at you and, and I never did. But yeah, they're all over the place. Now wow, that was rambly. Oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> We're all friends on here. Uh, that's that's what people are tuning in for. Now what I, I thought was really cool too was that the ghosts here in this haunted campus chapter they're fairly recent ghosts. I mean the people that are attributed to the ghosts, they died, you know, relatively recently, except for one lady that died, like, in the 50s or the 40s or something, uh, Roberta. Yeah, R Roberta Steele. Right, yeah, she uh, she died in uh, 1951 from uh, from complications uh, of a gas tank exploding that, that caught the dorm on fire. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's the oldest one. Uh, most of the rest of the, of the deaths have happened, like, in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, that's pretty cool because you just don't hear – too many stories. It would be interesting to see if you could ever find, like, the most recent ghost out there. Do you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, someone who's like... The new ghosts. Yeah, where are all the new ghosts? That's what I'm wondering. There are a few there in the in the haunted uh, campus chapter. Well, there was a guy that, yeah, in, in one of the dorms in, uh, in Franken Hall here, and for some reason, universities hate calling them dormitories anymore. They're residence halls, which is a bunch of crap. They're, they're dormitories. Yeah. Yeah, um, this uh, a guy died two years ago, and the uh, editor of the newspaper last year uh, lived in that room. Uh, he didn't know that the guy died in it he, he, until he you know, researched. He was doing some research on a story about the guy, and he's like, oh, crap, I'm living in the room this guy died in. No wonder I smell that cologne all the time. Um, the room is 214, which uh, the editor of the paper happily called the, oh, I'm moving into the Valentine suite. <laughs> yeah. And, although he, he never saw anything or, or heard much, there's this weird, weird odor, but uh, uh, not weird, it was like 
Aramis or something like that. Yeah, and I like the story of the uh, the other guy that died there, Amos Wong. Yeah, a number of the teachers here remember the guy. It hasn't been that long ago that he died in a car wreck, and he was uh, yeah he was a photographer for the uh, for the student for the yearbook, and people will now see him. They've seen him for the last number of years walking around downstairs, or they will feel if they're in that in that room that used to be the dark room, uh, just have a feeling that they're not alone. And somebody standing right behind them. People are attribute attribute that to Amos. Uh, I haven't seen, I haven't seen that. Um, I haven't seen anything. I haven't seen Amos. Haven't uh, haven't heard anything in this dorm or dorm. I mean, my office building. <laughs> but <laughs> dorm on the brain. But yeah, a lot of people have reported this. It's really strange, but I can see why it would be colleges. And then if you sort of like throw it back to the whole idea of poltergeists and how they think that it's girls sort of going through the the change, <laughs> not to sound like my grandmother, but it makes you wonder maybe if uh, if you sort of push that forward to like college age, there's a lot of like tumultuous emotions going on in a lot of young people in college. So if you well, a lot of teen, that, teen angst going yeah. along, a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of you know what, what the hell am I going to do with my life? You know where am I? What am I going to be when I get out of here? Uh, you know, I can't believe I drank that much last night. All this sort of, <laughs> sort of crap's going on here. And then, you know, people liking to talk and, and some people, uh, uh, out there in the, in the paranormal world think that if you keep talking about something, that keeps it around. So, especially with the, the legend of Roberta Steele, uh, the woman who died from complications of the, ex- of the explosion, um, She's been discussed for decade upon decade, and maybe that discussion's keeping her around. Yeah, I've heard that sort of concept before too. Yeah, yeah. Where yeah that, that, that's why uh, uh, certain certain uh, paranormal topics that I that I write about, my wife has encouraged me not to write a book about it because she doesn't want whatever it is to come knocking on the door because uh, I attracted so much attention. Well, yeah. Like, yeah, don't write about this because if one comes to the door, it's your ass, buddy. I have a feeling it's a black-eyed kid you're talking. That's about. exactly what. That's exactly I, the the entity. We're gonna get into black-eyed kids in a, in a few moments. I can't wait because that scared the bejesus out of me. I'm I like literally sit around and think about what I would do if a black-eyed kid. Like if a kid came to my door now, I will have to be like, let me see your eyes. I'll bring the portable phone outside, thank you. But we'll <laughs> we'll get to the black eyed kids in a minute. Now I did uh notice too in the book here another story uh is Mike Markham or Madman Markham as he's more infamously known and the whole time machine thing. I didn't realize that this all went on around uh where you are. Well I didn't realize I didn't realize it either until I started researching the book. I I had uh I've been an Art, Art Bell fan, you know, back, back in the day, so I remember him talking to this guy on the air. I remember the last interview he had with him back in the late 90s. And whenever I was, you know, doing some research for this, I found a, a link to a, a link to an MP3 of of that show that Art had with him. And so I downloaded it and was listening to it. And um, he mentioned he was from Stanbury, Missouri, and I'm like, crap, that's 27 miles away from where I'm sitting. And I made a lot of, uh, well, for, for, you know, people who, who aren't sure about Madman Markham, um, he was an electric, uh, school dropout and moved from Cincinnati to Stanbury, Missouri, which is a town of about 1,300 people. And in this town, they break one of my cardinal rules. At the, at the local convenience store, they sell sandwiches and fishing worms. 
Okay, don't buy food from a place that sells live bait. That's just just a rule of mine. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, um, he built a Jacob's ladder on his tabletop, which is two uh, pieces of uh, pieces of metal, and you send an electric current current through it, and like in the old Frankenstein movies. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he did that, and there was a, a, some weird heat signature on top of the Jacob's ladder, and he did what any guy would do. Uh, he threw something at it, and he threw a screw at it, and it disappeared for a few seconds, and then just land dropped on the table. And he was completely convinced right then that you know I invented I invented a time machine. So he decided to build a big one that he could use. Not for the betterment of mankind or anything uh, anything noble like that. He wanted to go a few uh, days in the future to get the lottery numbers. And in order to build his his man man sized time machine, he needed needed a whole bunch of power. So him and some buddies went to the local power and light building and stole power transformers. Those big silver or big gray line oh yeah line transformers. And um, he got caught because when he turned it, turned his machine on, all the all the lights in the, in town just went dead. And uh, and he spent some time in jail, about three months. But after that, he moved to St. Joseph, which is a near, nearby town where Jesse James got killed. And it's the home of the Pony Express. Anyway, <laughs> he went to build this legally, and he actually got a lot of donations from people, and then he just disappeared. What you say in the book is that he's still actually, like, around. Right. I, I got a hold of somebody who used to live in the same apartment building with him just a few years ago in uh, in the Cincinnati area. And uh, the cool thing about this is the guy said, I thought he was nuts when he was talking about time travel. But then he started telling me about this phone that he witnessed somebody use. And it was a little, it was a small, flat cell phone, and you could connect to the Internet with it. And it had a touchpad on the front. And basically, he described an iPhone. Yeah. And he also described these games that that hadn't hadn't been created yet. You know, video games. And uh, this this you know, guy who used to live next to him uh, is, is convinced that Markham actually actually did something. Really? Yeah, because he was describing all this crap that hadn't been invented yet, or at least hadn't been released to the public. Now, did you try and find him at all, or is he just too elusive where he wouldn't even, like, talk to you or, or anything? Well, like he's that? extremely elusive. The, the guy um, who knows him said he lost track of him when he moved, when Markham moved out of the apartment, but uh, he doesn't have a phone. <laughs> and I, I never could track down an address, so I wasn't able to talk to him personally. Well, if he's out there, he should get in touch with us, because I'd like to hear his story. Yes, Mike, please. I talked to your arresting officer also. He uh, he remembers you fondly. <laughs> Well, in a way, kind of like if you could harness time travel, I guess you'd probably want to keep it quiet after you figured it out. You know, oh, like, right, absolutely. I mean, as soon as you as soon as you announce it to people, it's not yours anymore. It could screw everything up. And if he's wanting to be Biff from Back to the Future too, and just make money off of the deal, absolutely, I'd keep it quiet. So I guess we just have to keep an eye out for some for a Biff from Back to the Future two styled. Yeah. Mike Markham pop up, uh. <laughs> and nobody references Back to the Future too. I don't know what I was thinking. Hey, at least it wasn't Back to the Future three, the whole Western right. version. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we'll we'll move to another story here, and uh, that one I was really intrigued by, and that's the Axe Murder House. I liked the thing they. I I, I can't do it justice. Uh, the picture that that you have in the book because it's just like. A house with it says the axe murder house out out in front of it with this like really kind of like 
letter lettering with blood dripping off of it, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> it's so it's just it's just funny. But what I thought was interesting about it, I don't want to sort of give away the whole thing, but just uh, that it was the victim of a, of a vicious you know, mass murder of like six or seven people or something like that. But people think that not only are the ghosts of the victims there, but also the ghost of the axe murderer, which I thought was pretty unique and strange in a way. So I guess I'll uh, share that story and, and then we'll sort of dig into it a little bit. Okay. Yeah. The, there were, uh, there was a family, uh, fairly, um, well-to-do family in, uh, in, uh, Villisca, Iowa back in, in 1912, they, uh, the, the parents and threw their th- took their three young children, ele- elementary school age, to a church picnic on Sunday night, and uh, a couple of uh, the kids' friends came home to spend the night with them. When they got home, everybody went to bed, and when everybody was asleep, somebody had been waiting in the attic, which the attic was basically another room right off right off the master bedroom that's upstairs. It's nothing you have to climb up to. You just open a door and you're there. He was hiding in there, and he came out and he killed everybody with an axe. He killed everybody with the blunt side of the axe, except for the the husband. He killed that with the with the bladed side. Uh, what? Not that that's sad enough. But the two kids who stayed the night also got killed, and the parents found out that their children were dead the next morning when they called the house because you had to go through an operator. Hello, Mabel, give me uh, give me this house. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the operator said, I can't, because everybody there was murdered last night. That's a hell of a way to find out your kids are dead. Yeah. From yeah. the operator. And anyway, they never solved the mystery. They never solved, they never figured out who the killer was. There were like three different suspects, and they did, the courts determined they didn't have enough evidence to, to pin it on anybody. But ever since then, the house has had, uh, had spirits in it. Uh, uh, people, nobody's lived there for more than six months at a time. It was a nice story about a relative uh, who bought the house, a relative of the family that got killed. He bought the house, and, and he was so freaked out by it, he lived in the barn out back and left his family to live in the house because he didn't want any part of it. <laughs> but it's uh, it's right now, yeah, it's open open for ghost uh, ghost tours. Uh, somebody in town bought it and, and restored it back to its, its original state, and, uh, and it's booked like every night of the year for people to come and do ghost investigations. Now, one of the cool things that happened, I took a, a class a class of reporters uh, up there last uh, last fall, and one of the kids had a, uh, a white noise generator. Uh, I don't know what kind of stock to put in this. Yeah. You know, it was one of the, like, goes through the FM band, and it supposedly it's, it's an electric version of a Ouija board or something like that. The ghost supposedly talked to you. And there was one student named Stratton who went in and did something I told him not to do, which is yell at the ghost. Okay. Come on, jerk, show yourselves. You're cowards. Come on, I want to see you. That sort of thing. Yeah. And um, in another part of the house, I was with a couple of students who were using that white noise generator, and one student, it got really cold in this one room, and the student asked, are you here with us? And a voice came across that said, yes. Okay, are you angry we're here? And said, yes, again. And then the student said, who are you angry with? And the voice said, Stratton. Oh, what? Yeah, oh it, named, it named the kid. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not 100% saying that, you know, that a ghost said that. Yeah. 
you know, if it's scanning the FM signals, you know, why would it pick answers, correct answers to questions? I, I have no idea. But that was pretty cool. What did Stratton say? He was like, yeah, I don't believe any of this crap. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was interesting, too, that in, in the book you mentioned that I think it was like – I don't know if it was a medium or or if it was people that somehow found a way to communicate with the ghosts, uh, allegedly, obviously. And you know they asked him like a bunch of questions, and the ghosts were pretty talkative. But then when they asked them who the murderer was, they wouldn't answer, which I thought was kind of interesting because it's like if you were murdered, wouldn't that be like the first thing – you would do, you know, isn't that the whole plot of Ghost? Oh, well, Patrick Swayze uh, <laughs> Demi Moore movie? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, if there's any Patrick Swayze movie I think about, it's Red Dawn. After that, I have no, I, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> yeah, actually, that was probably a bad reference, but you know what I mean. It was just kind of sort of odd. It's like, makes you wonder what that's all about, I guess. Obviously, you don't know. I mean, I don't even know. It's well, no, and the only, uh, the only person uh, that People speculate that the investigators speculate even saw the murderer was one of the kids because they had a, a broken right forearm. So the, the investigators speculated that this kid saw the murderer swinging the axe and put her arm up to, to brace herself, you know, to stop it, which, of course, she didn't. So they might not know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's true, yeah. The, the one interesting, interest, the most interesting, I think, spot uh, on, the, on the psychics, uh, the mediums who claim to have made contact uh, is a story that the owner owner gave me because he really until this all started until he bought the house he didn't you know think about ghosts he didn't think about mediums or, or any of this stuff but the mediums came down a couple of times and and they live in Omaha Nebraska and one of them called him one night uh, because well I'll tell you that in a second there was a bad um, box elder bug <laughs> uh, infestation oh in in uh, uh southern uh, southwestern Iowa okay. uh, one year and a bunch of bugs got in the house and he moved all of the furniture to the middle of the room to sweep all of the of the bugs up and out of the house and didn't put the furniture back and he got a call from one of the mediums that night saying Sarah which was the name of the mom Sarah doesn't like the way you rearranged the uh, the living room and she wants you to put everything back yeah and there's no way the medium would ever know that no so just wild stuff. Makes you makes you want to wring the neck of the skeptics in a way where it's like, how do you explain this? But they come up with something, I'm sure. <laughs> right. Well, and it's I, I don't put a lot of stock in a lot of a lot of people who claim to be psychic because I think there are a lot of people out there just full of crap. Yeah. Uh, people wanting attention, people wanting uh, wanting your money. But uh, that that being said, I think that there are also a lot of people who actually have some kind of a gift. Uh, I was. As a reporter covering a spiritualist convention about 10, 15 years ago uh, in Kansas City, and I was talking with this spiritualist minister. She didn't know who I was. She didn't know I was going to be there. She had no way to, to research me at all. And I, I started talking with her, and I asked how somebody becomes a spiritualist. And she said, well, there are two different ways. It's a religion. It's just an offshoot of Christianity, and you could have been born in it. You know, like you, you were a Methodist. You were born into a Methodist family, so you're a Methodist. Or it could be like your mom, who was Catholic until she married your dad, and she converted to become a Methodist. All that's true. <laughs> and she just said it matter-of-factly like she knew it was 100% true. Where the hell did that come from? I, I don't know. From the ether, man. That's exactly. Yeah, it had to have. 
to get back to the uh, the axe murder house. Uh, extrapolate on the part about how they think that the murderer is also in the house. Because I thought that was, is that just based on general feeling from people who come in and, and you know, sensitives, if you will? Uh, not 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 just sensitives, but they're the ones who think that it's it's the murder. This the murder. There's some speculation uh, whether it is or not, but the general consensus is that there's something uh, dark. There's some dark presence in the house, and and uh, you know, again, a lot of people think it's the murderer. Um, some people think it's just some dark entity that's taken up residence there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but people who have tried to, uh, mediums who've tried to coax information out of it, like, you know, are you the murderer, have gotten nowhere. People who aren't sensitive to this, however, have, you know, had ill experiences going in the attic. One uh, uh, one woman was physically pushed out of the attic Jesus. by something she couldn't see. So there's there there seems to be something there. The night we were there, uh, my group of students and I, we had absolutely no reaction in the attic whatsoever. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, it, it is interesting to to speculate that you know the murderer would be in the place he killed people. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like he's haunted by what he did or something, you know, or he has to atone for that. Now, hearing the story about the person that was pushed uh, by whatever the force was. Having been to all these places, and and in turn also additionally, I'm I'm adding myself into here because nothing's ever happened to me. Do you ever like hear these stories and you're like, you know, what the fuck, dude? Nothing. I never get anything crazy happening to me. This is kind of like I think the more you're into the paranormal, the less likely you're going to get anything really freaky or crazy or ghostly happen to you. Well, it's the, I think it's the more you're into the paranormal, the less likely you're going to have something happen, is because you're expecting it to happen. Yeah. You're you're thinking about it. The people that this stuff happens to aren't wanting it to happen. They're just wandering around and boom, something happens. So if you're expecting something, yeah, it seems like, you know, it never happens. Uh, I don't want anything to happen to me. You know, the paranormal is awesome unless it happens to, you know, as long as it's happening to somebody else. <laughs> yeah, I don't want it to happen to me. I'm fine writing about it. I think I don't experience anything because I don't really, I don't go looking for anything paranormal. The ghost. I'm not looking for the ghost. I'm looking for people who've experienced it. Yeah. I'm going at it as a reporter. I'm, I'm doing historic research and, and talking to people who've had experiences. So I think I'm just completely out of the equation when I when I visit these spots. Yeah, and if anything, they probably, uh, whatever the ghosts are, they probably appreciate you as sort of like a middleman between the, their their victims and, and them or something. Okay, now let's get into the black-eyed kids, because this freaked me out. Just share the story of the black-eyed kid in the in the book, and then um, then I probably have about a thousand black-eyed kid questions for you. So, woman in, in a town, um, Lawson, Missouri, which is fairly near Kansas City, and it really kind of hits me close to home because I used to live there, and this shit happened in a town where I lived. I don't like thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> but she, um, there was a, a there was a knock on on the door. Um, if I'm if I'm remembering this, I've done uh, I've written a whole lot about about black-eyed kids, so I'm, I hope I'm. <laughs> relating the right story but she she heard a knock on the door she was home alone with her with her, with her kids her mm -hmm. a five-year-old and a baby and um it was the front door and it kind of took her aback because all the relatives all the friends go knock on the back door nobody nobody knocks on the front door so she went and um 
slowly opened the front door, and then she noticed a little girl, about six or seven years old, standing on the front porch. The little girl looked looked lost. Uh, she was wearing uh, dirty clothes that looked, you know, decades out of style. Um, she went outside, and some things she noticed about the kid just right off the bat was uh, bad breath, which is fairly common for black-eyed kid uh, encounters. Uh, and, again, she was a little bit dirty, uh, greasy hair, that sort of thing. Uh, the kids started talking to her about, you know, there's some people after me. You have to let me in the house. And this is a common uh, theme with black-eyed kids is they demand to be put in to your house. You know, let me, they have to have permission. You know, let me into your house. Let me into your car. You know, follow me here. You've got to come, come, come somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and and this kid was talking a lot, you know, more maturely than a six or seven year old kid should have, and and that made her curious. But she also had this feeling that she, you know, just start terror at this child. And that was before she noticed the eyes. When she noticed the eyes, she really freaked the hell out because they were cold black. You know, no pupil, no whites. I mean, no uh, people, no no iris, no whites. It was just all black. You know, just two voids in this kid's head. Ugh. And, you know, the kid was like, you have to let me in the house. You have to let me in now. And this woman was just thinking about her five-year-old who was standing behind her saying, Mommy, Mommy, who is it? And she didn't want her kid to see this thing standing on her porch. So... And, and another aspect of the black-eyed kids, people find themselves, when, when, when they're talking to one of these things, wanting to let them in the house. You know, they, they see, you know, their hand you know, reaching to unlock their, their, you know, car door or, you know, yeah. reaching to pull, push the screen open and let this kid in. Uh, you know, sort of like you know, they're being hypnotized or something like that. And, and then when they see the eyes, like this woman did, she saw this kid's eyes. Just boom, that broke whatever spell she was under. She slammed the door, locked the door, and took her kid to a different part of the house, went upstairs, to, you know, made sure the back door was locked, went upstairs and checked on the baby. Um, and it just absolutely scared the hell out of her. And her husband came home later, and, and, and the kid was gone. But these instances aren't that common, but, but they're common enough. I've, I've talked to people in Kansas and Oklahoma, Texas, uh, Wisconsin, and um, England, who have oh, wow. seen these things, and then the the mo is is always the same. They're always kids. Uh, the teenage ones tend to wear hoodies for some reason. Bad breath, bad hygiene, very commanding speaking speaking style, and and then the then the black eyes. Now, are there any instances of someone actually letting the black eyed kid in? Yeah, this is this is the the interesting part. No. <laughs> There's no instances. And and interviewing somebody about this, she speculated that, you know, maybe all of the people who die of natural causes in their home, uh, you know, something that the doctors can't explain. Maybe they let these black-eyed kids in their house. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, they don't ever live to tell the tale. Yeah. Now, what's the – how long has this been going on? Like, how far back do we know about these black-eyed kids? Is this something that goes back to, like, Shakespearean times and stuff like that, or is this a relatively new phenomenon, sort of like the shadow people thing? Well, it's relatively relatively new in that the first time this hit pop culture was in 1999. Uh, a journalist in Texas named Brian Bethel was in his in his car um, in I don't remember what town in Texas might have been Arlington. Uh, anyway, he was in his car. He was he was going to pay his, his cable bill, drop it in the night night uh, deposit box uh, at the office. 
that was at the strip mall, and these two teenage boys approached him, and they were black-eyed kids demanding that he let them in their car and him to drive them someplace, and 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 he even saw, you know, was watching as his hand was going to unlock the car door and, and open it up uh, before he opened his eyes. But uh, anyway, or before he he saw their eyes. But yeah, that's that's the earliest pop culture type reference to black-eyed kids. Uh, in interviewing people, I did an article for Nexus Magazine on black-eyed kids. Uh, they've been around for a while. Yeah. Uh, there there are reports of things like this back in uh, you know thousands of years or yeah thousand two thousand years ago. What's the general? Does anyone have sort of like? I'm sure people have all kinds of theories. I guess like what well, what is. What's the prevailing theory on what these things are? Demons or something like that? Yeah, mainly some some type of demonic or negative energy. Yeah, whenever you throw the word demon around, and people a lot of times just shut off. Yeah, they oh, attach yeah, all that, kinds of yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, some some sort of negative in, in, entity, uh, extraterrestrials. Uh, I've talked to a few people who are convinced that's what they are. Um, uh, I actually interviewed uh, one guy. Um, he never would let me interview him on the phone, and he, did, he never would tell me where he lives, but we exchanged a lot of information via email, and he was claiming to be one of these. Oh, God. And that, you know, they're completely misunderstood, and uh, there are a lot of them living alongside uh, alongside people, and that uh, they're descendants of the serpent from uh, from Genesis. Oh, boy, that sounds like Dr. Joy Pugh, our recent guest on... <laughs> VOA audio, but that's what he says that that that's what they are. <laughs> yes. Wow. Did he take a picture of himself or anything to verify this, or was he just sort of like, trust me, they're black? Well, it, it, it was sort of a, a trust me, they're they're black sort of thing. Uh, but he also said that they can they can change their you know their eyes at will. I, I don't trust pictures anyway. That's true. Yeah, you can just Photoshop it anyway. So. Exactly. And would you really want to meet him? If he's got, if he's a black eye kid. No, I would not have him <laughs> over for for a barbecue. <laughs> it's interesting. I've, I'm really taken aback that you said this was a recurring thing because one of the things that stood out to me about the black eye kid story from the book was the bad breath. That seems like such a specific detail, but then apparently it, it's a recurring detail, which is just puzzling and creepy. Well, and and the the cool thing about this is the the, the bad breath. I didn't really include in a number of my my stories. Uh, but people mentioned it anyway, and you know, talking with people who point out, you know, that all you know from from uh, from across the country and and you know uh, across the pond, you know, pointing this detail out and not having any other reference for it, I think is is pretty scary. Yeah, it just adds a whole other layer of like <laughs> creepiness to it. A little kid with bad breath and fucking black eyes, I'd be like, oh, dude, I'm freaked out. Well, and I also went uh, when when I did did my uh, did my article on this. I, I went through all the you know medical explanations, yeah. uh, pharmaceutical explanations, and although there are medical conditions that uh, you don't have an iris or uh, the pupils are huge, um, there are certain drugs you can take to make your pupils huge. None of these things will account for your eye being completely black. You will have some whites, whites of your eye, even if your pupils are hugely dilated. So, so I took out the, the medical and, and drug-induced uh, type of explanation. Uh, another explanation people have is, you know, full eye black contact lenses. 
um, which are used in, in movies and, and yeah. in plays. And I, I found somebody who bought some of these just to freak people out on, on Halloween a couple of years ago. And I completely discount a lot of black, 99.9% of black eyed kid, kid encounters as being, you know, a person wearing these contacts because they cost like $300 a piece. Right. And right. You, you, you got to go get a prescription for these things. And the dude I talked to, you know, said they pop out all the time. And if you're a six or seven year old kid or eight, nine, 10, 14, you're not going to be putting these uncomfortable scratchy things back in your eyes every, you know, every half hour. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like what kind of little kid is going to have the, the wherewithal to even come up with something like that. Right, exactly. And if you're you're seven years old and and your parents helped you out, I think the uh, you know <laughs> state division of family services is going to be paying you a visit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're shoving black contact lenses in your eyes to freak out strangers. It's like, right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, all right, dude, where's the balloon for Balloon Boy here? <laughs> so, yeah. what's the most memorable thing about 2009, Balloon Boy? That's right. So, so, so you you don't think you're going to pursue a black eye kid book, or is it something that you'll eventually convince your wife that it's okay to do? Uh, I'm keeping it on the back burner. I think it's at some point maybe, except for something that one of her best friends from college, who lives in Omaha, Nebraska, which is you know about a two hour drive from here, something that that her friend told told us. Uh, she was at the shopping mall with with her kids. She's got a six year old, a three year old, and a you know, almost a two-year-old, and they were playing in a play area, and she noticed this little girl uh, who was acting weird and uh, kept following her oldest son around saying, you're, you're mine. And she noticed the kid's eyes, and they were completely black. Oh, man. And that just freaked the hell out of her, and she grabbed her kids and got out of there. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I don't. I'm. I'm not going to be writing a book until that that kind of smooths over. <laughs> yeah. Let me see. Anything else on the black eyed kids? I think we kind of covered it. Yeah. Run. That's my advice to everyone listening. <laughs> don't talk to them. Run. Yeah. Like I said, if one came to my door, I'd feel compelled to like try and engage it outside of the house, but. That could be my undoing. So, well, which I don't know why I've got a lot of reports from the Midwest where we embrace our Second Amendment rights. Yeah, you better not knock on our door out here, buddy. <laughs> yeah, but you don't want to shoot a black-eyed kid either, because then that's the one time it will be the the rube who put the contact lens in <laughs> in the kid's eyes. And trust me, no matter what they put in the eyes, you're gonna be you're gonna be the one in trouble for that. Yeah. <laughs> Slip a gun in the kid's hand. I promise, officer. This seven-year-old pulled this forty-four out on me. I promise. <laughs> you know what you missed? It's the second what? day in a row. I got a new shirt, new tie. Born in David Donnie. I like it. Yeah, well, why don't you say something out loud? I said huh? something to you. We're two taking days a ago. break. There's more PTI to come, including the Celtics-Lakers rivalry. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. What do you want? Some sort of award for wardrobe? Good night, Cannon. I bought six shirts. It's four to go. Open your yap. <laughs> Now, before we get to some of the other stories, some uh, some interesting sort of little things I noticed in the book. Now, you mentioned several times Offutt Air Force Base. Is there a connection between Offutt Air Force Base and Jason Offutt U? There are so few Offutts around that I think there must be some, some kind of connection, but do I know of one? No. Um, He's uh, the the guy they named off at Air Force Base from from what I gather uh, is the first pilot to die in World War One. 
And the embarrassing thing was, is uh, he crashed by accident. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Is this why you haven't pursued to find out how <laughs> how, yeah, it, how related you are? Exactly. <laughs> and then you have a whole chapter in there uh, with a, a few different Ouija board stories. And in that chapter, you mentioned that in 1920, the Supreme Court ruled it to be a game. So I'm wondering, you know, what was it before that ruling was it just you know what 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 was the story with that whole thing and how did it even end up in the supreme court it was it was a game like beforehand but it was also it was used generally uh, a lot of time a lot of, in the spiritualist movement of the era era um it was used as a communication tool with the dead yeah uh it was uh also used uh in i'm not remembering the year but it was it was used by uh, by a couple of ladies, uh, one medium and uh, one failed novelist who was uh, an English teacher uh, in St. Louis to, uh, I'm putting my fingers in quotes here, talk to Mark Twain. Yeah. And Mark Twain supposedly dictated two short stories and a full novel to these people. And they tried to publish the novel, uh, the, the Coming of Jap Heron, uh, a novel by Mark Twain via the Ouija board. And they did publish it and were sued by Harper Collins that, you know, still owned the rights to Mark Twain. And they're like, okay, you can't publish this because even if you did talk to the dead, he's under contract. And it eventually went to court to, uh, you know, to, to see if this was a tool to talk to, to the dead or if it was a game. And the court ruled that, uh, yeah, it was a game. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Now, what about Jim the Wonder Dog? You broke the 100-mile rule for this guy, but it was worth it, I think, and as you make the case for it in the in the book. Very weird. I like how, not to give away too much, because I'll have you share the story, I just like how they have a statue of Jim the Wonder Dog in the in the town where he was from. So it's, it's Right. Like, it sits right in the middle of the Jim the Wonder Dog uh, water garden park. <laughs> so tell people about Jim the Wonder Dog and, and this and this story because it's sort of like the uplifting tale of the book. Right, yeah, Jim Jim the Wonder Dog, a, a guy named Sam Van Arsdale, uh, owned the Ruff Hotel in Marshall, Missouri, and uh, he was an avid hunter. And a friend of his, as a joke, gave him the runt of a, of the litter of a, a group of, of uh, uh, English Llewellyn setters, the runt run of, of the litter. And the funny thing was, this thing turned out to be like the best uh, bird hunter in uh, in the state of Missouri and across the Midwest actually it was featured because of its uh, you know ability to, to point at a point a bird uh, it was featured in a lot of a lot of magazines at the, at the time this is back in the uh, 1930s uh, then the guys noticed that the dog started doing things that he told it to like Man, I wonder where the guy from Kansas City is in this room. People would gather at the hotel on a Saturday, and the dog would go to this person, and sure enough, he was from Kansas City. And he started trying things like, okay, find the man with the brown shoes, and the dog would go to the man with the brown shoes. It eventually got to the point to where people would, when Jim got famous enough, would give him commands in Italian and Spanish and German, and he would follow them. He would uh, could do math. He picked seven straight Kentucky Derby winners, the winners of a couple of presidential elections. If you wrote something down on a piece of paper, he could still do it, even if it was in shorthand. 
<laughs> so he could he could do all this stuff. Uh, I actually interviewed uh, a very elderly woman who was a young girl back when Jim was alive, and she was in the hotel uh, one Saturday with a group of girls, and the owner of the dog said, Jim, go find the girls in the red dress. And Jim walked over, and there were three girls in red dresses out of this big group, and he turned around and looked at his owner like, what, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> and then the guy said, okay, find the girl in the red dress with the, with the polka dot uh, ribbon in her hair. And he went to this girl, this woman I interviewed. That's um, just uh, amazing. Yeah. That, yeah. That, uh, you know, and I had to, even though I broke my rule, 100-mile rule, it's a psychic dog. You can't go wrong with a psychic dog. Yeah, yeah. And the stuff is so precise that it's not even like, didn't you say they tried to like kind of test the dude at least uh, to make sure he wasn't sort of like pulling a trick on people or something like that. Like he wasn't even in the room sometimes when a lot of this stuff went on. Right, he, he wasn't around. And, and even you know, when, when he was around, this guy is just a guy who from mid-Missouri. He doesn't speak Italian and German. He doesn't write shorthand. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, and, and they, uh, the University of Missouri did medical tests on Jim and, and determined that he's you know medically just a normal dog. His head was bigger than um, a normal Llewellyn setter, but uh, they determined he was no normal. And one of the cool things about about this whole story about this guy's owner is he was approached by movie producers to do you know to, to get Jim in the movies. Yeah. Yeah, because you don't have to train him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Say, say something in Latin and the dog does it. You know, that's it. he didn't want to exploit the dog, so he just used him to hunt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They just hand him the script. Yeah, here's the script, Jim. Just yeah, you're lying. You're page thirty-eight. <laughs> <laughs> now I know that it's like, I know that each story is probably sort of like your baby. But is there one in particular that's like your favorite in the book that you know you love telling, or or you found particularly super compelling, or like you know when you were putting together the book, you were like, this one has to be in it. Uh, well, yeah, and I've already talked about it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, the, the Mike Markham story. I just love, absolutely love that story. Uh, there is one I will will bring up, however, that uh, you know bothers me. <laughs> so uh, it's the possession of Travis White. Okay. Uh, uh, and the reason it, it bothers me is is I know this kid. You know Travis White. I, I know Travis White. I my wife and I went over to uh, his parents' house for for. Lunch last last or on Sunday, um, yeah. This, this guy went through something horrifying uh, you know, during a period of his of his late teens, uh, and he you know, talks about it freely now. But uh, he started seeing shadow people, uh, not shadow people, shadow person, just one. At first, it was in the periphery of his vision, and then you know it got closer to the center and closer, and finally he could see it dead on. And one day, the thing pulled its hood back, and he could see its face. Oh boy! And he, and he said it was you know a reddish hue the skin was, and uh, it was all scarred, broken nose, just a hideous looking thing. And it would start telling him to do things, which if he didn't do them, he would get these massive headaches. Uh, it it hated his girlfriend and told him, you know, dump your girlfriend. Uh, and every time Travis was around his girlfriend, the thing wasn't, in, wasn't around. But as soon as he got off the phone with his girl or he, he dropped his girlfriend off at her house, uh, the headaches, boom, would just lance him. Oh, uh, and eventually, well, and, and he would have, he would have, he, he would have problems like he would, he would black out and he would wake up in his, in his truck, you know, 150 miles away and he had no idea how he got there. Uh, 
so it was really disrupting his life. And finally, the, the thing started telling him that, you know, Travis, you got to kill your girlfriend. You, know, you really have to kill her. And at that point, he turned to his dad, who was really, uh, really involved in, in the Christian church. And they had sort of a makeshift prayer session, exorcism. And during the course, the thing started telling Travis, you know, kill your dad now, kill him, kill him. And finally, after you know hours of, of, of you know praying, this thing kind of left. And Travis said he still sees him out of the periphery of his vision uh, every once in a while, so he knows it's still there. But uh, that's that stuff's scary as hell. Did you know him before this? Before you found out about the story, or you just kind of know him now since you researched the story? No, I, I knew him beforehand, and, and he was like. Uh, and then when he when he found out that I write about this sort of stuff, he's like, hey, Jason, I got something I want to tell you. Oh, man. Wow. Which is like I was, I, I was talking about earlier. You don't know who in your life has had something like this happen. Exactly, yeah. That's always like the old thing about those of us who are in the paranormal that like, you know, once somebody finds out what you do, especially if it's just you and them, Next thing you know, they they want to tell you their story and everything. Right, and more of this stuff is you know, isn't out. People don't tell a lot of their stories because they're afraid they're going to get you know people are going to make fun of them. Yeah, and they know that I'm not going to. So yeah, I get I get stories from people all the time. Yeah, yeah, I've talked about this before. Yeah, sometimes you just want to go to the store for a gallon of milk though, and <laughs> <laughs> right, running into someone and their UFO story is like, listen, I just. I gotta get. I got. I got something cooking in the oven. I gotta go. I really gotta use the bathroom right now. Please <laughs> let me go. Now, at the end of the book, you do share some some ghost hunting tips. I kind of liked those because uh, they're written in the sort of style that I <laughs> that I have a, a similar sort of easygoing thing here. So, would you? What, what sort of lessons did you take from you know ghost hunting and that kind of thing? Especially now that it's so big. Oh uh, yeah, it's the, the 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 big part is is something you gotta gotta. Got to watch out for because anybody and and their mom's gonna buy a you know EMF meter and you know try and determine hey you know it's fluctuating there must be a ghost in the room well no there's not you know maybe there yeah. I don't I don't put a lot of stock in in that kind of equipment because uh, you know if you've got an airport within ten miles of you it's gonna go off you know pe- people don't really realize all of the uh, the, the electric fields the electromagnetic fields that are in our life you know right right in front of us. Yeah. So I, the, the only equipment that I really trust is uh, is my ears and my eyes, tape recorders and, and cameras. And you can't really trust cameras either because digital cameras, you pick up orbs, which are not ghosts. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. Occasionally I'll see something I can't explain, but generally, and I, I do this with my students, when we went to the Axe Murder House, it was misting. So I made sure I went outside in the dark and took a picture of the house with the flash and I went inside, and I'm like, hey, guys, look at this. And they're like, oh, dude, there's orbs everywhere. And I said, it's raining outside. <laughs> That's why this picture's filled with orbs. <laughs> or I'll do it at a cemetery, and I'll be like going, hey, great, man, this thing's full of ghosts. I'm like, okay, what's right next door to the cemetery? A dirt road. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. It's dirt in the air. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, the, 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 the best things you can do for ghost hunting for researching is one to realize nothing's probably going to happen and ghosts are spiteful like that if you're looking for them they're just giggling in the corner exactly yeah yeah and two your senses are the best things you can use 
at three is three is also the most important. Call ahead of time. There have been a couple of cases of teenagers going out ghost hunting and getting shot because they were trespassing. Oh wow, that's just uh, the whole this whole ghost hunting fad thing that's just gotten out of control. And you know, like you're saying about the EMF thing too, it's like. The annoying part is, like, there's never been any establishment of any sort of causal relationship between ghosts and any sort of the the meter part of it. Do you know what I mean? Oh, no, exactly. No, I'm right, I'm right there with you. It's like people claiming that this equipment can sense ghosts. Okay, what scientists, you know, came up with that? And was it, is it testable? Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's like we, no one's ever, you can't prove that, so we'd have no possible inclination that, that, what, that that's even accurate. Like, so I don't know what, how this even, <laughs> it's like the orb thing. I don't even know how these things even got going, but at some point they just kind of got out of control. Uh, right, absolutely out of control. I, I, I've got, well, this is one of the cool things about teaching at a university is because we have real scientists. And going out to beer, going out for a beer with a physicist is pretty cool, by the way. Oh yeah. Yeah, but I, I, there's a couple of physicists on on campus, uh, some friends of mine who hunt hunt ghosts, and they said, you know, we're the people who need to prove this stuff because then science is going to believe us. But the problem is that in order to make science believe us, we have to have a controlled environment. And have this ghost show up at the same time, in the same manner, you know, for 10 days in a row. Exactly, it, yeah. Yeah, that's not going to happen. That's a great segue, actually, into another big thing you worked on, you know, concurrently, or I think maybe after you finished What Lurks Beyond, and that's uh, this paranormal journalism course that you taught at the university. Talk a little bit about that and how it all shook out, uh, you know, now that it's all been said and done. Well, I, I had... Uh, I'm frustrated, really, with the, with the media, and I have been for a long time, uh, because if the mainstream, which it usually doesn't, but if it does pick up on a paranormal story, uh, Phoenix Lights, uh, Stephenville, Texas, the O'Hare incident, if, if it's big enough and enough people are talking about it, the mainstream media is going to pick it up, but they always use terms like little green men. And with ghosts, if they're writing a story about a ghost sighting, they always quote Ghostbusters. And, and all this does is discount any of the information that comes afterward. Yeah. Because they, they put it in, in a, in a, in a, uh, you know, it put a mockery label on it. And that frustrated me because as a journalist, you're supposed to cover every single topic the same. So I proposed a course that I was actually kind of surprised the university approved. I proposed a course called Paranormal Journalism, which that's all we reported on. And I, and I taught students to cover every aspect of the paranormal the same way they would cover a car accident or a city council meeting. And and that's just completely unbiasedly. The, the class filled up immediately. Uh, had a lot of students who were really serious. One of the questions that they that all of them had for me the first day was, okay, how in the hell are we going to find you know, a story every single week on somebody experiencing the paranormal. How are we going to do that? And I told them it's just as easy. Ask, you know, because it kind of proved the point of my book, What Looks Beyond the Paranormal in Your Backyard. <laughs> All these students found out that, hey, everybody I know has had something happen to them. Yeah. Yeah, so nobody ever had a problem finding a story. I even had some students find some extremely interesting thing. Um, the final project story one of my students found, he 
found that his, you know, a friend of his dad's had worked for NASA back during the moon, uh, you know, back in the late 60s, yeah. late 60s, early 70s during during the whole Apollo missions, and he said, "There's something out there. We all know it." Oh wow! Which that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's amazing. I take it that then most of the kids were sort of like, uh, I, I presume you wouldn't get any like skeptical people in the class, but maybe you did. I don't know. Well, I, no, yes and no. There, they they a couple of a couple of students started out fairly skeptical. They just thought it would be, um, you know, it sounded like an inter- interesting course, but they'd never had anything paranormal happen to them, and they didn't, you know, put that much stock in it. And then throughout the process of interviewing and writing stories, they found out that family and friends and people they've known for a long time have experienced this stuff. And we went on a couple of different field trips, one of them being the Axe Murder House. They experienced stuff there. So yeah. that turned them from being, you know, skeptical in a bad way to, to a lot more open-minded that, hey, you know, something is going on. What were the subjects that the kids really gravitated towards, like haunting-type stories or, you know, Bigfoot or UFOs or whatever, you know what I mean? Uh, It really depended on on kid to kid. Uh, All of them were interested in ghosts, and that's most of the stories that they turned into me were were ghost stories. But um, I covered uh, in my lectures, which were extremely fun lectures to put together, Every every lecture was a different aspect of the paranormal, ranging from ghosts and Bigfoot, UFOs, demonic possession, uh, um, lake monsters, things of that nature. And, and there are always a couple of kids more excited about those, yeah. you know, each, each individual than, than, than the thing as a whole. Like what sort of lesson did you impart on these kids that you need to just don't go in prejudging these people who've had the experience because, uh, you know, then then you're carrying all that baggage of your own into it? Well, right. The, the the judging people, you know, to, to approach everything uh, honestly, as journalists should do, and, and and of course we know, watching TV news, they don't. Uh, but 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 to do that, yes, and and to treat somebody seriously who has seen a UFO, determine because one of the things that that reporters need to do is to develop a good BS detector. Yeah. Which, which I have over the years, and some of the advice that I gave them was, okay, treat these people seriously if they're really serious. You can, you know, it's it's really easy the more you do it to, to be able to tell somebody who's full of shit from somebody who actually had something happen to them. And and one of my rules of thumb are, if somebody says they've seen a ghost, fine. If somebody says they've seen Bigfoot, fine. Interview them and, and get some details, ask them pertinent questions. But if one person claims to be psychic, has remote viewed Mars, um, has seen Bigfoot, has been abducted by UFOs, and has given JFK a back rub all in the last two months, yeah, probably full of shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I would presume then sort of also that part of the lesson for the kids would be that you don't need to come to a conclusion in the story. Do you know what I mean? Well, because it's not their conclusion to come to. Right. As reporters, they're reporting on what happened to this person. Right. Yeah. Too often I think that the media covers these things and then, you know, like, for instance, like a UFO story or something, then they'll they'll always let, like, the FAA get the last word in or something like that. Where they're like, okay, case closed. Right, exactly. Uh, and... The the FAA um, 
in my case, in researching researching my book, they were a lot easier to get information out of than the, than the Air Force. Oh yeah, I bet. Yeah, the FAA was great. Thank you guys <laughs> for all the FAA guys listening. This was a fall semester class, right? Right, it was fall 2009. And what is it going to be making a comeback? What are the what are your higher ups at the university think? Were they a fan or or what? Well, it was it was pretty successful, and then uh, it got the university some press, which was nice, and people liked it. Uh, uh, I'm just uh, we got a lot of, of regular regular stuff to do right now with the uh, uh, economy the way it is. Uh, they're not approving a lot of new stuff right now. Yeah. Which I'm glad that uh, the, my physicist friends and I got uh, got our grant for the time machine when we did. What is this? You got a grant we, to make a time we machine? Got a, we got a grant to buy a time machine. From who? Uh, a guy named Stephen L. Gibbs. Okay, I've heard of this guy. Okay, yeah. How did the so what? When did this all go down? And what was the result of your time machine investigation? Because I'm remembering Stephen Gibbs now, and I'm I'm intrigued by that someone bought the thing. <laughs> right. Well, we uh, uh, well as I alluded to before, we were sitting around having having a beer at a, at a local establishment and, and talking about time travel, which they're extremely interested in, and and I am and. Uh, one of them brought up Stephen Gibbs because they'd heard something about him. And I said, yeah, I've, I've read about Stephen Gibbs. And they're like, man, I wish I could get a hold of the time machine uh, like that so, you know, we could take it take it apart and, you know, take a look at it. So we came upon this idea of all three of us getting together and proposing to get a, uh, you know, writing a grant proposal uh, that they were going to write an academic paper over which they're working on, and I would be able to use it for instruction in my class. And uh, the grant was miraculously approved, and uh, we bought one of Steve's, Stephen Gibbs' time machines. I, I tried it out on my students, and uh, they're playing with it. And uh, it hasn't worked. Actually, I can't say it hasn't worked, because um, it takes three minutes for the process to, to happen. Because uh, have you ever seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite? Yeah. yeah That's he- the time machine. Okay, yeah, all right. <laughs> so sitting, sitting, sitting there with a coil around my head, holding a, a, a nice, powerful electromagnetic uh, electromagnet in my crotch, and and rubbing my finger on something uh, on this machine, yeah, it really looked cool. But uh, it takes three minutes in order for the, the time travel to happen. So I did travel three minutes into the future while I was using it. <laughs> so it really does involve the genitals, then. So I didn't... yes, yeah, it did. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Oh man, that's probably why no one really like probably asked for a refund. <laughs> right. Well, I had uh, and and I used it first because I've had four kids. I don't. I don't. I don't need that. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Regarding the paranormal journalism course, to jump back to that, do you foresee you know these kids moving on and continuing to sort of like get into the field, or or uh, you know was it sort of a, like a, a one off? Sort of uh, side interest thing, and now they're going to go back to drinking and having sex. Well, I think that's that's most of what uh, most of what the students. Well, actually, <laughs> most of my students were uh, were seniors, so they've they've graduated. Um, one student uh, is is still pursuing uh, getting a column for uh, for his local paper on on the paranormal, and um, through I, I started a, a blog for my student stories. And uh, because of her writing on on the blog, uh, she got approached by a publishing company out of England to uh, write a book on on the paranormal. Oh, so wow. she's doing that. So that's really cool. I'm really proud of her. Wow, that's awesome. What's the what's her name? We can look for that eventually. Bethany Rowell, R O W E L L. 
Wow, that's cool. Wow. Why doesn't anyone approach me to write a book? Hey, Tim, you want to write a book? Not really. There, it's happened. <laughs> it takes a lot of damn time. I know. I don't have that kind of time. Now, one of the things I advise people when they get mixed up in all this is to make sure that uh, they have a day job or something. I presume that since they're, you know, or stay in school, but since they're already in college, that that's probably not part of the warning. But did you sort of get it across to people that I feel like this isn't a career choice? No, it, it's not. And actually, uh, a lot of career choices, like journalism, is, is not really a career choice. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't pay anything. Uh, yeah, no, I, and, and I've, my my uh, fifth book, my fourth book on the paranormal is coming out later this summer. And, uh, yeah, you you got to have a day job. It, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't really pay the bills. Any updates or any news on Shadow People? I know uh, Darkness Walks, huge success. People loved it. And, uh, you know, you've kind of become the shadow man. <laughs> so any any updates or any sort of uh, cool news stories about shadow people or anything uh, cooking in the shadow world? Uh, no, not uh, not really. I mean, I've gotten a number of, of shadow people reports, and they're the same type of uh, same type of occurrence. Uh, you know, people will uh, report seeing uh, a person wearing a fedora that's just you know like a black cutout uh, staring at them from uh, from the doorway in their in their bedroom and. Then when it notices them, notice them or him, they it leaves. I just a lot of stories like that, which are are scary enough, but uh, but not a lot of new news. Um, there are two things I, I will bring up. Uh, one of my students wrote about a paranormal encounter with shadow people. Uh, it was a personal experience that he and a, and a friend had when they were in high school. They were playing tennis at about ten o'clock at night, and his buddy was like, "Look at that over there by the dumpster." And he looked, and it looked like somebody had left one of those cowboy cutouts. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen them there. Yeah, they like smoking a cigarette. They get the one leg cocked back. Yeah, they saw it. And they were like, hey, somebody left one of those cowboy cutouts at the dumpster. And then the thing stood up and walked away. Oh, jeez. <laughs> they, they didn't play tennis anymore. They got the hell out of there. Yeah, that would freak me out. Yeah, that and uh, the other, other bit of news on Shadow People, uh, uh, I just noticed, because uh, he pointed it out, Lauren Coleman named uh, Darkness Walks one of the top ten uh, paranormal books of 2009, which was a nice honor. Awesome, yeah. Well, it was an excellent book, and it was sorely needed in this field, because uh, I heard so many Shadow People stories, but no one ever sat down to put them all together and sort of uh, try and take a look at them and figure them out, which he did in the book, so... Yeah, well, I mean, and, and I had to, this thing, it, it has bugged me for decades. When when you see this shit walking around in your bedroom when you're 9 or 10 years old, uh, you want to explain it. You want to find out what the heck these things were. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I knew that, there, especially after talking to so many people who'd seen them, I wanted there to be some explanation out there out there for, for people who really, really didn't believe that, uh, you know, that anybody else had ever seen one of these. Yeah, it seems like it's more and more... Uh prevalent more than ever, which is probably a combination of the awareness factor and possibly some other paranormal element we don't understand yet. Right. We don't understand any of them. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm coming around more to the idea lately, too, that, like, a lot of these things, kind of like what you were saying, where if you talk about them, you welcome them or you keep them going or something. But, you know, Uh, you generate this stuff, or at least an innocent might. Right, or the the the, the popularity of, of the paranormal right now, more people are talking about it. So yeah, I mean, maybe maybe we're generating these things ourselves. 
Yeah, like the uh, the experiment. I don't remember who conducted the experiment, so so forgive me. But the Philip experiment. Are you f familiar with that? No. Uh, the people conducting the experiment um, uh, created ahead of ahead of time uh, uh, an identity, and they started using a Ouija board, trying to find that identity, and they found that identity. Uh, this entity was talking to them through the through the Ouija board, and it was this Philip they created. Weird. It, yeah. What? That's like a tulpa almost. Well, right. They they never never saw it. However, but they, yeah. they just communicated with it. Now, have you ever played with a Ouija board? Uh, the only time I ever played with a Ouija board was uh, I was a senior in high school, and I was just trying to get lucky. <laughs> This girl wanted to use a Ouija board, and I'm like, all right, you betcha, let's, let's do it. I've been tempted lately to to try a Ouija board, but part of me is like, you're fucking crazy, dude. Okay, uh, Tim, this is my advice to you. You're fucking crazy, dude. <laughs> Don't stay. It, it, seriously, I mean, all of the people I've interviewed who's, who've used them, um, not all of them, but most have had a negative experience. Uh, you're opening a door saying, hey, whatever's out there, come come talk to me. And you know, there's a lot of bad stuff out there. Yeah, yeah. Although I do advise giving Ouija boards as gifts to people you don't care for. There was, was it Milton Bradley or Parker Brothers? I don't remember who produces Ouija boards as toys. A few months ago, they produced a pink one. Oh, oh my for God. The, for, for eight-year-old girls. Okay, that's great. That's what I want my kid doing. <laughs> Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing, honey? Oh, I'm just talking to talking to Grandma. Well, no, you're not. Yeah, a pink, stop. Wow, a pink Ouija board. I don't even know what like. I don't even know what that says, really. Like, what are they thinking? They don't. They don't care. Obviously, they don't really. To them, it is just a game. Well, I guess they're sort of like exempt from because of that Supreme Court ruling. In a way, they're kind of exempt from any problems or whatever. You know what I mean? So, right. Because legally, it's just a game. Right. Weird, yeah. So I'm thinking about giving a Ouija board to like my obnoxious 13-year-old cousin. Yeah, yeah. Here, uh, ask something to come play with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I can, yeah. And then I can, you know, I'll start a blog about his Ouija experiences. Yeah, yeah. And when, uh, yeah, when, when, uh, you know, the, the parents are like, Tim, when the hell did you give this to my kid? Hey, it's just a game. Here's the Supreme Court ruling that says so. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, he burned the house down, but that's, <laughs> you know, the Ouija made him do it. All right. So you teased. You got another book coming out soon, uh, towards the end of the summer. What's what's this all about? Uh, it's called uh, Paranormal Missouri. Show me your monsters. Oh boy! Just uh, just a whole bunch of stories. I've got fifty plus in there. They're, oh wow! A lot of them are shorter than uh, than than the ones in, in my newest book. But uh, uh, stories about anything ranging, you know, ghost, Bigfoot, uh, the UFO crash that I mentioned in 1941, a UFO base uh, underneath uh, some federal property in Jefferson City. Just really some bizarre stuff. Weird. What's that called again? Paranormal Missouri. Okay. Subhead is show me your monsters. Okay. Oh, so you've done Haunted Missouri, so now you're doing Paranormal Missouri, and it's more like a monstery element to it. Right. Nice. You're taking over Missouri here, dude. Well, you know, I tried the humorist route for a while. Uh, so I, I also write humor. I write about humor and uh, dead things. And <laughs> I realized that, uh, you know, if, I, if, if I'm going to be a humorist from Missouri, Mark Twain set the bar too fucking high, so I should probably write about something else. Exactly, yeah. Well, I'll have to look at more of your uh, 
humorous stuff anyway, because I find you very amusing, so I'm sure I would enjoy it. Yeah, my uh, my wife my wife doesn't sometimes. She goes, you know, you really think you're funny, and I've won some humor writing awards. I just point to the wall and say, look at the plaques, baby. I am <laughs> funny. <laughs> yep, it's, it's been determined by a committee. <laughs> All right, well, where can folks get their hands on a copy of What Lurks Beyond the Paranormal in Your Backyard? Well, they can get it uh, a couple of different uh, places. Uh, they can get it from uh, the publisher, Truman State University Press, uh, or they can just go to Amazon.com. Nice. Sounds good. Sounds good. And, of course, your website is from hyphen the hyphen shadows.blogspot.com, correct? Right. Awesome. Awesome. And if anybody out there has a story of the paranormal or just wants to ask me a question, please shoot me an email uh, at jasonoffit at hotmail.com. That's right. That's right. Get in touch with them, folks, and share your stories. But don't freak them out with too many black-eyed kids stories because those are fucking terrifying. <laughs> I swear. I don't know. Like, something about that story just stuck with me for a while. I don't know what it was, but it's just so bizarre. Yeah, just, uh, it's just the fact that, you know, they're normal, and then all of a sudden you notice, holy shit, yeah, their eyes. And, like, little kids. Little kids are freaky kind of like that, too, you know? Like oh, right, kids. because they're, they're innocent and they can't hurt you. And, oh, well, shit, yeah, they can. Look at this thing. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, if some like, little girl with black eyes showed up at my house, I'd be like, oh, what's, what's the worst could happen? Then it turns into some fucking giant demon or something. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, like I said, folks, this really is the perfect book for this time of season. I know you're going to be heading up to, as we've said, Lake Winnipesaukee. A lot of people are going camping this time of year, or, you know, they're going on trips and stuff, and this is the perfect book for that, because uh, you can sort of do each little story, read it around the campfire, and really freak people out, because there are some freaky stories in here. Uh, there's some in here that we didn't get to that are just stunningly amazing stuff. I'm referencing especially the uh, near-death experience woman is a freaky one that definitely people will want to look for in the book, and a guy who was tormented by his ufo sighting as well so there's a whole bunch of stuff we didn't even get into the crying house uh this weird statue in the cemetery called the black angel that has all kinds of uh weird mystical uh mythos attached to it i mean these are just some of the stuff that we didn't get to here today that you can find in what lurks beyond the paranormal in your backyard it is the ideal summer book for campfire stories so go out and pick it up jason Ovid continuing to emerge as one of the premier storytellers and story collectors in the esoteric world. Thank you once again for coming on the show. Hey, Tim, anytime. It's always, always a pleasure to be on. Uh, that does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Jason Offit for coming back on the show. You can find out more from him at his website, From the Shadows, www.from the hyphen shadows.blogspot.com don't forget the hyphens in there from hyphen the hyphen shadows.blogspot.com great website with information on how to get a hold of jason's books as well as really spooky stories from his readers so you definitely want to check that website out moving right along now it's time for boa audio listener feedback and much like last time we did this segment we're going to try something a little bit different here at the end of the program because our last pure esoteric edition of BOA Audio was a couple of weeks ago featuring Dr. Joy Pugh talking about biblical prophecy and end times. 
and we got a ton of feedback on this episode, both pro and con. So I wanted to feature some of the feedback we got from listeners with regards to the Dr. Joy Pew interview that you heard on the program a few weeks ago. Kicking it off is Chris, No Hometown Listed. He says, that was without doubt the most painful interview you've ever done. I'm not saying thwart someone's efforts to get their views across, but you should have cut her off at the pass, got to the chase, just the main points with a little background. Although it was interesting, it didn't come across very well. Matthew says, listened to this show and was simultaneously mortified, amused, and downright perplexed. Dr. Joy believes the Bible is historical record. Really? Thanks for having a guest on that makes the UFO community look sane. On the other end of the spectrum, Evan, a.k.a. Nurakabe, weighs in saying, I personally thought it was great. I'm not religious at all, yet always find it interesting to get a look at the esoteric from various religious viewpoints. I think part of the problem was that Dr. Pugh seemed to be trying to cram her lifetime of research into that one interview. It may have been more accessible had she focused on just one or two aspects of end times. Oddly, I think having read a bit of David Icke gave me context to better follow what Dr. Pugh was talking about. I tend to think of Icke as a nutter, and yet every once in a while folks like Dr. Joy Pugh come along saying basically the same thing, but from a different angle. I wonder if she's familiar with Ike's work. And finally, Tommy joins in on the conversation and says, Excellent interview, Tim. I was nailed to my chair. Clones everywhere on higher levels of society is my guess as well. They just can't be normal, loving humans. I think that's quite obvious. So as you can see, lots of feedback on the Dr. Joy Pugh episode. That's just four of the various correspondences I received from listeners who tuned into that edition of the program. Thanks to Tommy, Evan, Matthew, and Chris for chiming in with their thoughts. Um, I don't really have too much to say, really, in response to the Dr. Joy Pugh episode. I think maybe it suffered in a way due to my lack of questions in the beginning of the interview, but I think it's important to note that when I sit down to do an interview with a guest, much like you sit down to listen to the program, I'm going into this blind, for the most part, with a lot of these guests. So you're not really sure how they're going to answer questions. Some guests will give you a 30-second response to an elaborate question, and some folks will give you a 30-minute response to a very simple question. And Dr. Joy Pugh definitely fell into the latter category of guests, but that's something that you don't quite figure out until you're already in the midst of the interview. And I think if you listen to that episode, you can kind of hear me realizing Dr. Joy's style of answering questions so that things get tighter as the interview goes along. Perhaps I should have interjected more earlier in the conversation, but I really wanted her to sort of lay out the scope of her epic conspiracy theory, and I was going to give her as much time as she needed to fill in all the details on the beginning of this conspiracy theory and the end of it. Nonetheless, I think it was a really fascinating interview. I think Dr. Joy's material was definitely thought-provoking. I can understand why it wasn't some folks' cup of tea as much as I can equally understand why some folks really enjoyed it quite a bit. But even though I can see both 
schools of thought with regards to the episode. I was really surprised just by the polarizing effect the interview had on a lot of people. Folks either loved it or they hated it, which is fairly rare for this program because most of the time it seems like the feedback is either tremendously positive or fairly quiet from the listeners. So to get such a large amount of I wouldn't go so far as to say negative, but sort of disheartened feedback from the listeners was interesting to me. So I appreciate all the folks who wrote in, whether they loved the episode or hated it. And I definitely want to hear from people who listen to other episodes of the program and have thoughts on them, whether they are good or bad. How do you get in touch with me for BOA Audio listener feedback? That's simple. You just write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. And you can also join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. In addition to that, I'm also on Facebook, MySpace, and Twitter. And as you can tell from this week's listener feedback and the previous edition of listener feedback, we're trying to work in all the various avenues of correspondence from the BOA Audio listeners. So no matter how you get in touch with me, there's a good chance we'll work it into BOA Audio listener feedback. Next up is the thanks portion of the show. Allow me to tip my cap and give a hearty thanks to the outstanding BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla, Pena, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolan, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Lots of really cool stuff up at BOA from the BOA staff. Marla Pena and Leslie weigh in on the end of Lost. Richard Thomas has a text interview with Dean Hagland of X-Files and Lone Gunman fame that's going to be posted at BOA very soon. Rochelle Hawks looks at strange paranormal photographs. Regan Lee gives a recap of the McMinnville UFO Festival and a whole bunch of other stuff from the really talented BOA staff, always contributing some thought-provoking pieces for Banal of America's great readership. Plus, as we teased at the beginning of the show, we've got BOA 2.0 ready to roll out for you soon, probably within the next 24 to 48 hours, so we definitely want to hear your feedback on that as well. Keep an eye out at Banal of America for BOA 2.0. We say it week in and week out, but it is the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. As we also teased at the beginning of the show, since it's time to talk about donations, we have finally gotten around to getting a P.O. box for BOA. So here is the information for those folks who would like to send a snail mail donation to Benal of America. You can send your stuff to Tim Benal, that's pretty easy, T-I-M-B-I-N-N-A-L-L, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. And here is how you spell Pinehurst. It is P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. So, once again, here's the P.O. Box address for folks who want to send a snail mail donation. Timbinall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 01866. And we've also got it listed at Banal of America. 
for folks who want to head over to the website in order to see it written out and, uh, I don't know, copy it and paste it or whatever you want to do. And if you're one of those folks who wants to make an online donation, that's pretty easy. You just go to Benalla America and click the PayPal button. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benalla America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the podcast series up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, we have got a real barn burner of an episode for you, my friends. Our guest is ufologist Paul Stonehill. He's the author of Mysterious Sky, Soviet UFO Phenomenon, and the Soviet UFO Files. We're going to be really digging into the Soviet UFO phenomenon and research community. We're going to talk about some of the key cases in Soviet UFO history, the evolution of ufology in the Soviet Union, how the government and military reactions to the phenomenon have changed over the years, and the evolution of the media coverage of the UFO phenomenon in the former USSR. We're going to delve into a myriad of angles related to the Soviet UFO phenomenon, including the surprising preponderance of USOs in Russian UFO lore, what former cosmonauts have said about UFOs in space, the mysterious Lake Baikal, the infamous Tunguska incident, the world of Chinese ufology and how it compares to Russian ufology, the interest from Russia in Mars moonlit Phobos, and tons and tons more that will hopefully prove to be tremendously enlightening for any serious student of the UFO phenomenon. We're tackling another international realm of ufology once again next week on BOA Audio with our guest Paul Stonehill author of Mysterious Sky, the Soviet UFO Phenomenon, and the Soviet UFO Files. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Once again, big, big thanks to Jason Offit for coming on the show. Check out his website, From the Shadows. And big thanks to the four folks who weighed in on the Dr. Joy Pugh episode as well. And, of course, most of all, A heartfelt thanks to all the great folks out there listening, the BOA Audio listeners. You guys are the best, the fuel that drives the BOA machine. I can't thank you enough for your support of this program over the years. Thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.